Hello and welcome to episode 120, 120 of the Right for Your Life podcast. I'm Ian Broom. And I'm Donna Sorensen. And uh, we have a veritable mixed bag of things to talk about on the podcast this week. Inc- we do. Including- we do. There's lots going on. Um, well, including our, we, we said we were going to feedback about our um, our testing of real life Pomodoros. And I yep. did actually try, as last week we were talking about um, using um, things like the washing machine cycle or um, time to cook something um, to sit down and get something written. Um, it's like a motivation and a little time window. Um, and we were going to test it. Did you have a chance or not? I did. I tweeted about it. I tweeted right on the internet about it. <laughs> tweeted right up the internet. Yeah. Um, nice. And How did it, go? Uh, it went. Um, it went. Uh, it went well. It went well. It was a very short period of time I had. I was just waiting for another member of my family to get off the phone, so that we oh, could. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. So that we could do something. I don't remember what it was. Uh, eat possibly, um, but I thought while I'm waiting, instead of playing eight ball pool on my phone, which I'm getting worryingly good at. Oh, let me just write that down because I need to download that. Was that eight ball pool? <laughs> yeah. It's a writing tip. Download eight ball pool. <laughs> it will stop you. Yeah, go on, carry on. Um, and and I did. I wrote. Uh, do you know what? I I don't think I wrote any more than a hundred words, but um, those hundred words were absolute gold. And was it specifically twenty five minutes, or was it just that window of time that you had? Did it, you stop after twenty five minutes? It was a real life pomodoro. I just did it in the time that I had. Yeah, because that's the thing that I found is that. I, I wasn't the original concept that a Pomodoro was 25 minutes and then you took a five minute break and then another 25 minutes. Yes. But the real life Pomodoro could have stretched out to however long it took um, processes or windows of time like that to, yeah. to, yeah, to pan out. Um, so I did it as well. And I found that I, I couldn't possibly stop after 25 minutes with, I, it's not enough time for me to get, to get into anything. So real life Pomodoro is I think definitely the way forward. Um, I was writing this week, waiting for somebody to get back from the gym. Um, that's not a Pomodoro I've, I've had much opportunity to use in the last year. <laughs> I'd say that I've that person, I'm talking about my other half, has been to the gym twice in the entire year. You have to do a lot of writing in those two periods of time to get anything exactly. done. Exactly. But I'm hoping that it will be a real-life Pomodoro that I can um, use a lot more in the future because I did, I, um, I wrote a poem this week so that was good that's fantastic i haven't edited it yet it also gets him out of the house as well doesn't it (laughs) totally does gets them out my hair um so so yes so great i'm i'm uh i'm on board for the real life pomodoro and um recommend it squeezing things in when you can eh yes absolutely it's like i said last week it's something that i have done before kind of without giving it a name it's just kind of the way i've worked for short bursts um so um so yes i think it's uh i think it's uh, worth giving a try folks mm, super now ian this week are we going to start with the listen earth question yes we are good you have to say yes <laughs> I, I had absolutely no choice um this week's listeners question is from dave m not milliband i don't think um and his twitter handle is uk haiku um which is it's not i thought it was going to be a um 
Oh, I've forgotten the word. I've forgotten the, the the term for it. How silly! What's the what's the the? Uh, oh, come on! What is it? When you need I, to give me something more than what is it. No, but come on, the thingy. The, the thingy with hair. The thingy. The what's it? The Ooh. when a word looks the same forwards as it does backwards. And it, a palindrome. No. No. Oh yes, yeah, no, yeah, a palindrome. It, <laughs> Seriously, we, uh, typing palindrome. No, I'm getting confused with a. Um, oh, I've forgotten the other one as well. When, it, when yes, you, it is. It's a palindrome. Yeah, no, I, I know. You, I said it was. I uh, I knew all along that it was. But I'd like you to make a formal apology on air that you said no to start with. No, I said I wasn't. Sh- no, I see. When you said it, I said yes, but then I thought maybe it's not. But I was getting it confused with a portmanteau. That's the one. So, oh, when you prop things together. Yeah. What was that? That was an outrageously loud text message. Goodness I'm gracious. so popular. I do apologise. Shall I put my phone on silent? You can if you like. I'd always assumed that it was you playing the xylophone, but now I'm not sure if it was some kind of small gnome on a tricycle. <laughs> oh. Anyway, so you thought it was a... Did you think it was a palindrome or a portmanteau? For a split second, I thought that UK Haiku was a palindrome and it isn't and we've just wasted at least two minutes of everybody's lives. But at least we've clarified those two important words. Come on, let's take something positive. Remember, we're positive this this year, aren't we? 2014. Indeed. Um, So what was Dave M's question? He says, I don't recall if you've covered the writing process in terms of degree of planning, how you get from idea to outline, to to draft. (laughs) I didn't read that second the second part of that sentence very well. It sounded like you dribbled a little bit in the middle of that. I think I did. I don't recall if you've covered the writing writing process in terms of degree of planning, how you get from idea to outline to draft, question mark. So idea, outline, draft. Yes. Yes. So we have talked before about planning. We've talked about how we plan for what we write or how we don't plan in some cases. Um, I've talked before about how I wrote the first 10,000 words of the novel without having a clue what was going to happen at the end and then eventually I got so far in and I had to start planning a few chapters ahead. Um, I've talked about that before so I don't want to go over that too much uh, again. Poetry seems to me to be a slightly different kettle of fish, you can tell us, but um, idea outline to draft, you can probably have that done in about 20 minutes, can't you? (laughs) Hey! Um, well, the, 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 one, the poem I was working on this week, I think I mentioned last week that I was doing it for a wedding deadline. Did I mention that? I did, yeah. A, a wedline. A wedline. Mm. Portmanteau. <laughs> it is. Um, that was brilliant. Um, so I felt a lot of extra pressure. This wedding is next week. I've written it and I've not edited it, but I had the idea... And it took me about six months to get the idea. <laughs> and then I've literally got the, the draft. I had one night to do it and bashing it out. I had another night. But I will take a week editing it to make sure that it's all right. So what do you do when you're edit- editing a poem? What is the process of editing a poem? Because I know that when I've, uh, when I've attempted poetry, um, or even if I'm working on a very, very specific short part of uh, like the novel, like a f- fiction or something, then... Mm-hmm. I find myself agonising over, you know, individual words and, and, and presumably, in your case, syllables as well. So how do you go about editing a poem? Because it seems, you know, such a... I, I'm not being intentionally derogatory here, but it is, you know, it's a small piece of writing, isn't it? It's short. So does that make it the editing is process... It, is it a small piece of writing? 
Well, it sounds like if you've only spent. <laughs> yeah, no, hang on a minute. I am. I'm going to spend two weeks on it nonstop. And is that a typical amount of time to spend on a poem? Some poems, I'm telling you, I've written them in 15 minutes. Others, I've spent a year working on them. So it, it really depends. But I, with this poem, I, it is a lot about putting particular words and phrases under pressure and just really saying, is that is that what should be there? Because like as I said, I had the idea finally after six months. So I knew where the poem was going. But in because I was under so much time pressure in terms of the form that the, the poem was going to take, I'm still not convinced about that. So I could end up completely changing this poem around. Um, but as I said, different for different poems. What I am actually quite fascinated about how to do it for a novel, because I've only, as I've mentioned before, actually on the podcast, only ever got to the planning stage on my novel. I did write two chapters. Um, and I saw two things online this week about this whole thing, including something I'd like to think I coined myself, the Potter Plotter, which when I told you about it, Ian, if you would like to tell people what it is, you told me it's been around for ages and everyone knows what it is. Well, I, I've definitely seen it before and I think it was, I think we're talking years ago. Um, it's um, it's just an image of the, I guess, the plan that... Um, jk rowling made for the harry potter novels actually i don't know if it's for all of the novels or if it's just for no, one it's partic- for one of them okay um and it's um it's kind of like a giant wall chart i think i think it's quite a big piece of paper that it's on and it's really just i don't i don't, I do, I don't think it is sorry sorry to contradict you i think it's um well i mean i the last time i saw it was about five years ago so, so um <laughs> oh yeah because it's yes very passe. No, I know. But I, I saw it this week and I'm looking at it right now. I think it's done on an A4 sheet of paper. Okay. And it, um, this is the first time I've seen it. Sorry, everybody. What interested me about it was uh, the fact that I couldn't understand a thing. <laughs> and I, 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 I think it's probably because I haven't actually read um, many of the Harry Potter books. I have read a few. But, I mean, I've seen the films. So I was very interested about the fact that um, that it wasn't just, you know, the time scale that she'd plotted out. So it starts off that she's talking about the chapter, what time of the year that chapter covers, the title of it, which sums it up, the plot, and then what main characters are doing during that chapter. And then there was a, a, a line for, or a column rather, for prophecy. I don't know if you remember that, Ian. Um, I don't remember that, no, but it sounds mysterious. It does sound mysterious, doesn't it? Um, and that presumably is what are the aha moments or, or the, the what is being uncovered in that chapter that the reader has already, you know, like the dramatic irony, the reader already knows that that's bloody going to happen, but the characters are starting to catch up or look ahead. And this is this was what was interesting to me because I was thinking that is that's really, really vital, that. Well, it sounds similar to again what we mentioned last week the the um, the piece of advice by John August, I think his his name, a screenwriter who who'd said that um, when writing a script, you need to before you start, you think about what does this scene need. So not what could happen, what what kind of or um, you know who says what, but what needs to happen in this scene or in this case chapter or whatever it might be at any given point. Absolutely. Um, there were lots of columns on this that I didn't understand. I didn't know what DA was or OP 
pee or cho. <laughs> so like it was it was completely um mind-boggling to me but it was interesting to see how she did it because um there were massive gaps in it so there were whole i mean maybe she she filled it in later but it's not like she sat down and mapped every every chapter even no and i think it's so difficult to do that i've tried that i have tried um being really quite meticulous with planning a chapter but whenever whenever I, i i sit down to write um i might get the gist of what i wanted over but inevitably something else happens um, or I'll go off in a different direction, and it could just be a turn of phrase that I found I found particularly amusing, or that I thought that I don't know there was something there, and so I go off in a slightly different direction. And and although, and again, maybe this again comes back to that: what what does this scene or chapter need? As long as that bit's covered, how you get there is perhaps less important. Now, of course, you have to have limits on this. You can't suddenly just introduce something ludicrous. And I think we're going to talk about this type of thing later on in the show but mm. um but having having um having sort of a really rigid plan i've always found quite difficult i've always had and i have done this loose planning thing i keep i've been threatening for how long have i been doing right when did i set up right for your life the, the blog which is now defunct um 2008 so that's six years that i've been threatening threatening people with an ebook and i was always going to try and convey in words my um my planning um, system that I came up with, which was uh, basically post-it notes and a wall, but you know, doing certain things with them, and I did a similar sort of thing. So um, to to uh, J.K. Rowling, um, and I don't think I had quite as much detail as she does on the Potter Plotter, but um, I don't think if anyone else saw it, they would particularly understand, unless I'd mm. taken the time to write an ebook explaining it. So I think that's quite normal. I think I think when you're writing uh, any piece of work, I think you you know the secret code. You know everything that hangs it all together. And when you're writing a novel, it's it's one of the challenges is being on top of all of it, knowing what happens, especially when you've written quite a bit. So knowing what happens in chapter three, or or knowing what date you referred to uh, in chapter six, so. Mm. That, and it's all these loose ends that, well, potential loose ends that you need to really make sure are tied up. And keeping all that in your brain is really difficult. Um, yeah. Even something as simple as, um, I don't know, um, which characters appear in which chapter, in which scene. These these are the things that are, are practically impossible to know um, without writing them down or having them in some sort of system. Yeah. Um, and that's what um, the Potter plotter is showing. So who who pops up where? And, and what impact they have because in terms of driving the plot forward that's I can see that's very important but I do you know what Ian this I got so bogged down in my planning and I've said this before I think my planning a lot like my notes about what I wanted in each chapter ended up being like kind of mini chapters themselves and then I, I couldn't even be bothered to go back and read them because they were so long that sounds ridiculous doesn't it no i understand i do i've tried it myself and found that it's like i say the more detail i put in the the more frustrated i get when i do go off on the tangents and that's kind of the way i write there is this i think it's the way everyone writes there needs to be i think some kind of authorial instinct to it so you need to let your have a plan but let your imagination take you to an extent that now that doesn't mean that i'm saying that your characters (laughs) are doing the work no, but there has to be room for tangents. 
the, the there has two, to be. The does have to be room for tangents. <laughs> there has to be holes in your Potter plotter, as J.K. Rowling has. Indeed. Oh, well, there, there you go. Um, the other thing I saw this week online, which I feel relates to this this whole planning question, um, was a very interesting piece which we will put in the show notes, which will be at five by five dot tv slash wfyl slash one two o. Um, you're not even going to comment on how efficient that was. Well, it was efficient, but you took a deep breath as if to say, "Oh goodness, I need to try and remember this." But actually, you'd got there first, and I thought you were going to ask me to remember. I will next week. Yeah, why? Yeah, you always ask me. It's ridiculous. I'm going to do it next week. I'm going to spring it on you. I can tell you now, it will be exactly the same, but with one, two, one at the end. <laughs> we'll see if you can remember that with the pressure of being live. Speaking of pressure, before we move on to the mm-hmm. next bit, um, mm-hmm. and I really am, I'm just completely backtracking at least 10 minutes now. You used the phrase um, you wanted to put your poems or your writing, or maybe it was certain words, under mm-hmm. pressure. Like yeah. Freddie Mercury and David Bowie might. Yeah. And that's an interesting turn of phrase. And I was going to ask you about it at the time, but you carried on talking and I didn't want to interrupt. But now that I have interrupted, what exactly do you mean by that? Because in marketing terms, one of the most irritating phrases in the world um, is when people say, well, we need to make that logo work harder. And I'm thinking, that poor logo, that, that, <laughs> that, poor, that poor inanimate object. Leave that logo alone. <laughs> um but is, is it the same is it what what do you mean specifically Hang on, by- so basically you've just set that by saying one of the things that i find the most irritating in the entire <laughs> world is this phrase is what you've said basically like that um my answer is no and not just because you set it up like that um sorry no putting it under pressure is like focusing only on that one particular thing and testing it basically testing the strain on it saying does it stand up with regards to what's around it if would this be better and um in ireland they don't have i you know i'm about to say they don't have a poet laureate they have um uh, an ireland professor of poetry who is paula Meehan, and she's fantastic um and that's that's a phrase i got from her that she she says you need to put words in your poem under pressure hmm i thought i like it i i, I don't i didn't mean to be uh, to sound disparaging, but it's um, I think it's a, an interesting way of mm. expressing it. I think it's I, I like that. It's good. I like the idea of testing as well. I like yeah. the idea of not 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 getting someone to give feedback, but testing it. It's a very scientific process. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like and that. And th- th- it's very easy with me for this one. I'm I know that next week I'm going to be standing on a lake reading this in front of a hundred people, and like Jesus. No, because oh, I was going to say something. I'm not even going to go into well, he's, you know, controversial he, there. He was he stood on lakes. Did he? Well, he walked well, um, for a bit. <laughs> I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to try and walk towards the wedding party across the water, and then just start reading as I land on the shore. Um, and I I can I'm I'm imagining it in my head. It, when I say that, what are people going to be thinking? And and I'm going to am does that stand up to the test? Will I be happy to stand there and say that word? It's very tough when you're performing in front of people, um, when when you've written something for uh, a specific event, when it's your friends or family, Mm. and, you know, there is a a very special kind of um, pressure that. But you'll be fine. You'll be amazing. You're a brilliant reader. You'll be absolutely tremendous. Well, I I love it. That's the thing. But this is... um, 
I mean, this is the third time I've done it now in the in the last year for friends and family. Um, and there's, it's been very different every time. But I do find it harder than performing to strangers, obviously. I guess everybody does, don't they? Yeah, I've been mainly focused on my funeral work. Oh, don't! <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Was brilliant. that a joke? No, it's no joke. I've had to I've had to write something and speak at a couple of three, two, three funerals in the last three or four years. Mm. I mean, that's that's a whole different ball game, isn't it? Because you have to keep yourself in check as well for you know emotionally and yeah, yeah absolutely. It's um, yeah. I don't know if we're completely off topic here, but it is. I mean, I don't know if anyone's out there has ever had to do that, actually write something for either a wedding or, um, you know, or a funeral. But the writing of it is tricky. But when you actually have to read it, um, it's in- incredibly difficult. It's, uh, yeah, I, I, the, the, uh, one of the things I wrote and read for, was for my uh, auntie, who I've talked about before, who, who um, she she was 69 and she had a brain tumour and just went from being very healthy to not with us in, in like three months and so it was a really a big shock and she was very religious and um, they had this ceremony they had this ceremony and it was very small sort of venue and everyone was absolutely packed and I'm I'm talking like when I got up there was me I could reach out and touch the coffin if I wanted to and then about another meter beyond that there was a room just packed full of people. And um, bizarrely, the, b- beforehand, a bit like when you get when you get ready to do spoken word, at, I don't know any spoken word event. I don't know about you, but I kind of have a period of trying to steal myself, and I don't really listen to what's going on beforehand. I apologise to all those people I've performed with in the past, but if, if the, the acts that are on before me, in this case, you know, a vicar of sorts, um, I, I I just sort of block all that out, and I'm just really focused on what I'm going to say and making sure I say it properly. Well, this was like that, but amplified by about a thousand, and um, yeah, I just, I just had to try and be absolutely captain cool. It was incredibly difficult, very difficult yeah. thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think if you can do that, then you can, you can perform anywhere, eh? Uh, yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we're already twenty something minutes into this. We just can't help ourselves. Have no, we you, can't uh, help ourselves. I, I, hang on a second. I'm going to go then back to what I was talking about. Yes, I'm sorry. Before we started putting words under pressure. Um, and to finish off our listeners' questions, See, it's good when we start with a listeners' question because they're so good and we just go deeper into it, don't we? We do. Um, so the, the, the last piece that I wanted to share with regards to um, the planning process was a piece from the Irish Times this week um, entitled Never Let Research Get in the Way of a Good Story. Um, and as I said, that will be in the show notes. Uh, this was just an interesting little um, uh, comparison about how different famous writers in Ireland and some new novelists as well um, go about researching because some of them quite clearly spend a lot of time researching. And they're writing, you know, very historical novels. Everything has to be um, spot on. Very interesting about the people that say that they don't do any research at all they just just go launch straight into it and just get writing 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 um because they don't want to be bogged down or tied down you know you have to get to basically it's all about the emotional heart of the book and then you can improve on that later and correct factual errors that was uh, one viewpoint on it um 
as opposed to making sure that absolutely everything is correct, which will then dictate how the story goes and it will restrain the story. I thought that was quite an interesting um, conundrum there. Yeah, and I think it's not necessarily that it it kind of prevents you from um, being, I don't know, emotionally able when you're writing, but it, it can really stop you writing. It can, if you spend too much time messing around with doing other stuff, then you know you're not writing. Um, I, I, I think it's, I think it's quite difficult to uh, to know how much research to do. I think sometimes it can, you can get bogged down with your research, but it also depends on what you're writing. If you're writing, you know, an, a historical novel, then you probably need to have some idea of the history. Um, if you're writing about, I don't know something that's um, a family dispute then you can probably get away with not doing a great deal of research i suppose it depends what it depends entirely on what you're writing well imagine if you're you're writing a scene like it's set in the 70s and you're talking about something to do with the room for example i guess the point is is that just just write the scene and don't worry too much about whether you know, something historically could have actually been placed in the room at that time or what was on TV, because that's those are details that you could potentially put in afterwards. Whereas if you're worried so much about that and that will dictate the way that you tell that story instead, which is just it's going to sound false. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, the thing I liked about this piece was that it just clearly showed that every writer is different. Some writers need to spend a lot of time absorbing the, the period or getting a feel for for where it is they're writing about or what it is. I like the idea that a lot of people feel they need to go to the place that they're going to write about if they're going to write about a place. Seems sensible. My mum's never done it and she's written, you know, children's books about all sorts of places and never had the chance to go. But to be able to do that is would be obviously ideal, wouldn't it? To be able to actually go and sit in a place and just get a feel for it. It would. And my the novel I'm working on is... Um sort of set in Sheffield which is quite handy because it's where I live um, <laughs> and the first novel was set in a town that was very similar to the one I, w- I grew up in so it's um, again it all depends on what you what you want to write I guess but yeah mm. a lot of people do travel but it's pricey mm. isn't it it's quite pricey it is pricey it's I'd like pricey. to uh, I think I'd like to set my third novel on a beach in the Bahamas oh yeah that Just, would be good to come find out what it's like <laughs> um so anyway yeah i will we'll put that in the show notes just because it's quite nice to see how different authors approach um the research stage and, and how that influences the rest of their writing um so there you go david m Th- uh, we've uh, we've uh, had a good old chinwag about uh, the the planning process haven't we certainly have were you going to talk about casting pods casting pods um only very briefly the, there's um I just, I am a relatively technically minded nitwit, and um, so I'm, I, I keep up to date with um, various technical issues in the world, including how to listen to podcasts, and um, and uh, and this week uh, a new podcast app um, was launched for the iPhone, um, which is really good from what I can tell so far. It's called Overcast, and it's by Marco Arment, who is. Uh, um, uh, he was previously uh, the sort of man behind Instapaper, and he was one of the founding folk at, at um, and kind of built uh, the original Tumblr. 
So, you know, f- for heavy hitter. He was also a, a host on um, on 5x5. He had, had his own show on 5x5 too. Lots of people listening to this will know exactly who I'm talking about. Um, mm. But I'm aware that we have a, a very mixed audience here on Right for Your Life, and I just wondered whether everyone knew that you can listen to podcasts in far more efficient ways than you used to be able to. So apologies to those of you that already know, but a very quick overview. Um, There are four ways that I've written down here very quickly that you can listen to a podcast and subscribe to a podcast, of course. Excuse me. First of all, you can go to the site itself. So we give you the show notes, and that's the same page that you can go and listen to it just on the internet. So 5x5.tv slash WFYL. We have a, a place on the internet, a web page um, via the network that people can go, and there's a player and you can press play. Not, I don't think that many people do do that, but you can do that. Um, or you can go to iTunes, which was always the old-fashioned way, and you plug in your phone or do it by Wi-Fi, and you can download episodes to your phone and um, or, or your mp3 player of any kind and Bob's your uncle you can listen to them then but you have the physical thing there with you or you can um, stream them which is why my podcasting listening podcast listening behaviour has changed completely in the last few years because with my iPhone and with most I think pretty much any smartphone if you get a, a podcast app or a podcatcher I think is what some people call them um, you can um, stream your uh, stream your podcasts so you have you can subscribe um, listen l- listen to them uh, by uh, streaming them without downloading podcasts you know the actual episodes the file to your device and there are lots of good ones I've been using Instacast for ages Instacast also has um, a kind of I think it's still in beta but uh, an app for the Mac so you have like a proper Mac based interface which is really handy um, and there is there's Overcast now, and there is Castro, and there are various other ones too. And I just very briefly wanted to say that Overcast is great. I recommend it. There's a particular feature that is, I think, relatively unique, where it um, <clears throat> it removes the, or shortens the silences. So, for example, in this episode, I think me and you do it quite a lot, actually. I think one mm. of us will say something, and either either one of us is you know either not sure it's a joke or how what the appropriate way to respond to the comment is or you know sometimes there are just natural pauses in the conversation and mm. um and overcast- i tend to fill those with guffaws <laughs> yeah um overcast uh, kind of shortens those silences and people have been, who've been using it for a little a little while are reporting having saved like tens if not hours of minutes um like a week or a month or whatever like people are it sounds so stressful i'm stressed just by the idea of small pauses being removed from our life like what is it going to end with it's going to end with just like a constant stream of noise <laughs> well some would argue that's what it's like already <laughs> constant stream of nonsense yes um well fascinating <clears throat> so that's it i just wanted to just say that first of all i'm recommending the app is from what i've seen of it so far is great and secondly, I just wanted to briefly say, do you know that there are other ways to listen to your podcasts that are quite efficient? Well, there you go. We do now. Thank you. Um, hey, have you have you listened to my pilot? Oh! <gasps> no, I haven't. That's ridiculous. Ian, I'm so sorry. <laughs> if it's any consolation, I don't even have time to... Um, ooh, I would, see, whenever I'm going to say something like that, it's always going to be rude. Um, and now I can't think of 
something that's not rude to say. <laughs> well, I, don't I mean, we we've all fill, we've all filled in the gap for you. So um. <laughs> yeah, great. So you all can imagine, yeah, what I don't have time for. Uh, so I haven't had time to uh, listen to it. I do apologise. Can I promise I'll do it before next week? You can, and uh, and uh, you know you've got your own poem on there, and um, I'm thinking of having a chat to you about it in in more detail. But we can do that later off air. But the feedback, and I'm I'm going to use the phrase, phrase testing. Um, the testing results so far have been very positive um, and consistent. So the negative stuff has been consistent. So I might tweak it a little bit, and then I might just put it out there. Where then have I you might... been um, testing it, by the way? Um, I just sent it to a couple of trusted people. Okay, so you're at the, yes, the trusted people stage. Okay, that's good. Trusted people. It's just a. It's just a, like a, at the moment, it's like a fourteen or fifteen minute audio file, and ah. um, and so I and uh, you know I, I sent it to, um, yeah, a couple of people, including my agent, who also liked it. But um, um, uh, she uh, said she like yeah, she said she liked it, but she um, also um, s- suggested I don't let it take up too much time, which I think is agents speak for. For, for write the novel, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is which which is I'd like to, I'd like to uh, um, say on air. Having said that, that is absolutely the right thing to say to me, <laughs> and I don't That's intend to. Fantastic comment. Right, I'm just going to write down here. Listen to the pilot, um, and I shall do. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Right then. So you've got a you found uh, ten things that make an editor stop reading your manuscript. So yeah, this was fabulous, everybody. I saw this um, list online, um, and I'm not sure there anybody else has, has seen it, um, but I thought I would like to share it with you, Ian, and with everybody else. So how are we going to do this? We've got about I don't know ten to fifteen minutes left in this show. We've got ten points, and I don't think we're going to get through them all. But I think there are a few that really stand out for me. And this yeah. t- this ties. If you listen regularly, then you'll you'll know that we did kind of a three part or a three episode series on the publishing process, and one of those was about um, you know sending your manuscript to agents and editors. Well, this is this piece is specifically about editors, um, and uh, and I think that a lot of the advice here is is really good, and it really made me think about my own writing and some of the mistakes that I've made in the past and and that kind of thing. So, are, are we going to pick out maybe a couple of each and see how we get on or do you want to just try and pile through the entire lot in one go that is such a good question i probably have a few in there that were to be honest they were all so good though like i i think we could almost talk about all 10 of them so maybe we should just pick a few important ones now okay well let's let's just let's just start at the start and if we don't get through them then uh, we can finish off next week so this is Elizabeth Law Reads, the, uh, her blog. Um, she's um, a consultant, editing, um, and well, presumably, actually, I should to probably clarify exactly what it is she does, whether she is an agent or if she is a, a freelance editor. She's a, that, the th- See, the thing I've always thought about um, Elizabeth Law, I just feel like she's that rare editor who is not only rigorous sentence by sentence, but she's also deeply concerned with the mind of her author. I mean, I'll always be grateful for her wise, careful shepherding of my first novel and the shape it ultimately took. Right. Well, that, that's um, a quote from someone. Yes, well, the Elizabeth Law is available for consultation on your manuscript, and here she has um, written down ten things that are going to make the editor stop reading your manuscript and they're, they're great things. So I really, really like them. So number one, 
the number one thing she thinks, presumably, and she says this is a biggie, that will stop an editor reading your manuscript. And here she is uh, specifically talking about children's or young adults' manuscripts, which I think are, you'll see as we talk about um, the other points, it'll become more apparent that that's the case. Nothing at stake for the reader. That's all she says. And it's so simple, isn't it? There's got to be a reason that you're rooting for that character. Why on earth are, that, is, are they going to bother reading on? <clears throat> um, it's no good talking about it. She says, don't give us a kid who has a lot of things to say about his life, his parents, his school, his crush, but doesn't have any problem that pulls you through the book. I think that it has to be established really, really quickly that there is something something funky going on in your in your novel or your whatever it might be. I think that, that we've, I mean, everyone knows this, that the first chapter, the first words, the first whatever is really important, but um, it's, it's, it has to be more than well written. There has to be, you have to really just, you don't have to like a character, but you have to feel like there is some conflict immediately. Yeah, conflict. You need to be willing to help this character through their life, through their book. That's what, that's what it's about, yeah. Do you want to pick one? Well, we're just going to read number two. Straight to number two, because I quite like this one. Uh, number two, the voice is too young or too old for the age of kid you are writing about. Mm. <clears throat> and um, this I'm, is so difficult, this one, yeah. Very difficult. I'm currently uh, writing a book, uh, the, so the novel is about, um, I think that the narrator is going to be 14 or 15, and this is a big thing for me, because um, it's it's really difficult if you, if you have... Um, a child or or any any age really I mean it goes the opposite way around if you have an old person then you don't want them saying something ludicrous I suppose Um, so getting that voice right is really really important I think I think it's very difficult to to do there's a a, a, sorry very very quickly the recent example of this that I found a little bit frustrating was a book that I loved and that's uh, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close you know hugely best selling book Jonathan uh, Jonathan Safran uh, just like you know a proper bestseller um, literary fiction brilliant book I'm sure lots of you have read it or seen the film and I love the voice the voice is brilliant it's absolutely brilliant and wonderfully written and without that voice then it wouldn't be the same book but you know really how many nine year olds do talk in that way mm, absolutely and I've never read Room by Emma Donoghue but I would like mm. to it's on my list that's an interesting prospect as well. Um, the narrator in that, you probably all have all heard of this book, um, written from the perspective of the child who's never left one room with his mother. Um, but, yes, I've read what it. I was going to you've read it? Yeah, yeah, I read it when it, uh, when it came out. I, um, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was good, a good book, but um, again, it wasn't, it didn't feel quite right. And the book changed halfway through. I mean, I don't want to give anything away, but halfway through, something changes and it really struggled to keep that, I think, sorry, I, I don't like saying stuff like this, but it, I felt like it struggled to uh, maintain the voice um, that it had kind of set up so brilliantly in the first half. Interesting. Well, I, I'll have to get to it now. What I was going to say here was, I think there's a difference. I'm just presuming that the book that you're writing even if the narrator is for 14 or 15 year old it's written for adults so it's a narrator narrating for adults as opposed to a narrator a child narrator of 14 or 15 narrating for children because this is something that my mum said to me about as well when I was writing my young adult book and I only wrote three chapters I made the protagonist 
14. And that meant that the age of the child that would be reading that book was younger because nobody, like kids want to read about older kids and certainly they don't want to read about younger kids. So that's that's another thing about it, who are you writing it for as well as who is the, the voice or who is the narrator. It's true, yeah. It's very difficult. Yeah. Um, great, yeah. So that was number two. Number three. <laughs> this is a good one. Uh, actually, I have a story to relate to this one as well. Number three was trying to sound hip, street or ethnic if that's just not your thing. Um. And she talks about examples of books they've had in which were just, uh, you know, outrageously stereotypical and obvious. Um, and they talk about the fact they do need diverse books, but if you can't comfortably and naturally write in a particular dialect, don't do it. And that's interesting because I think they're not saying, you know, don't write what you don't know. It's not that you can't write something that's not you, but if you can't do it, don't bother trying. Quite have, sensible. Have you ever tried to uh, to write in a hip street or ethnic kind of way? No, but when I used to work at the Irish Writers' Centre in Dublin, uh, we used to get some funny phone calls. I got a phone call from a guy once. I mean, I have no idea why. Um, and he asked me, he just called up, and he asked, um, he just wanted to clarify that he was going to use the word Negro in a book, and did I think it was all right if he did? <laughs> He actually called the Irish Writers' Centre to ask that. Well, what else are you for? <laughs> uh, and, I, I mean, what I tried to convey to him in that conversation in a way that didn't say, like, I'd probably just give up writing now to him, was, um, you know, that if you're, if you're having to ask me this question, then you shouldn't be doing it anyway because you're obviously not comfortable with the, the voice of the, right, of, of the characters in your book. Like, this is, this is not you. Yes, I think that was a very good answer. Uh, Or it would have been if you felt able to give him that answer. I don't know if you did. Well, I can't even remember. So many years ago, I probably went, "Um, yeah, go on, just whack it in there, have a go. (laughs) (laughs) Send it off to some agents. (laughs) Um, But anyway, yeah. Yeah, I mean, perhaps something that maybe we have more experience of, um, because I certainly haven't tried to sound hip for, I don't know, about 15 years. but I think sometimes people write in um, with um, what's the phrase? God, I'm struggling with my actual terminology today. Um, th- their accents, dialect. So people go for dialect. Mm. Um, so I'm from. You know, my book uh, was set in the north of England. I could have I could have had my characters sort of saying, "Hey, up, you're eight. How are you going on, youth?" Um, but I chose to say things instead, like. Hello, how are you? <laughs> um, and I, I just again, I felt like, I mean, I do come from an area where there is that kind of, you know, that that is the way people talk. I mean, not me necessarily, but lots of people do, and and that would have been, I guess, it would have been, um, in keeping with the setting um, and the characters perhaps but I just mm. felt like it, I feel sometimes that it can become extremely distracting if you if you include strong heavy dialects in your dialogue because it's mm. it's making assumptions uh, about um, about how people read and how, what people understand and unless there is a really good reason to do so I think I would err on the side of 
um, of uh, talking proper, I think. Mm, absolutely. Well, I, I've just realised I want to put something in the show notes here, and that is an absolutely amazing poem, I think, personally, which was in Poetry Journal a couple of months ago, I think it was, two issues ago maybe, um, written um, at a bus stop on the border, on the American... US-Mexico border um, about an interaction between a guy at a bus stop and somebody who was speaking English with a a really, really strong um, uh, Mexican accent. And it's an absolutely fantastic poem, I think. And it's written completely in dialect. So it's written like phonetically as he would be saying it. Um, And it was mesmerising. So I will put that in the show notes and I would love to know what people think of it. Um, We'll have to do that, eh? Oh yeah, that Stop sending good. people on to writing that we we think is is cool as well. It's a good thing to do. I Ian, guess what? What? I think we're going to have to carry them on next week. I think so. We've got some good ones to come. I mean, it's uh, these are are all good talking points. We can perhaps give some of these points a bit more um, thought and uh, and detail as well. Yeah. Crib the titles. Expand. Yes, absolutely. I think that they um, they it's justified to give them a little bit more time. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a great article, and I apologise if I was in any way derogatory when I was um, reading out that quote. I actually thought it was the start of the about page, um, <laughs> <laughs> then I realised in you know third person Elizabeth Law is that rare editor is, and I thought then I, as I got sort of quite towards the end, I thought this is a quote from someone else. I sound like I'm, I'm being disrespectful right here. This is Elizabeth Law is from is a very well respected um, editor. So if she listens to this, hello, then. Um, Sorry. We like your list. Sorry about that. We like your list. <laughs> Sorry we're stealing it for material. <laughs> but we will continue. We will we will delve deeper into the other reasons why Elizabeth Law thinks that editors, or, or no, not thinks, that she can specifically say in concrete fashion um, that editors stop reading your manuscript next week. Indeed. Uh, in the meantime, if, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do at The Flying Poet on Twitter or at the Right For Your Life Facebook page. Woo! It's been a busy week on there for you, hasn't it? <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I am, I'm going to get involved in a serious way. We've, we've made a plan, haven't we? We're going to... Because we're, we're, we're we've, got, we've got some minor reach problems. Yeah. Like a, like a small boxer. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the course when you actually spend about four months saying, don't bother following me here, follow me on my jazzy new page. And that was in 2012. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But anyway, we, we, we will be reaching out to more people. Yeah. Where can they find you, Ian? Uh, on Twitter, at Ian Broom, I-A-I-N-B-R-O-O-M-E, or on my website, ianbroom.com, same spelling. Fantastic. Thank you. Look forward to speaking to you next week. Will do. Ta-ta. Bye.